Welcome to the Humanise the Numbers podcast series. Leaders, managers and owners of ambitious accounting firms sharing insights, successes and issues that will challenge you and connect you and your firm to the ways and means of transforming your firm's results. Marketing to a niche, but it's not about marketing to them at all. The marketing is dead simple. You get a domain name that's, that's related to that industry. You work out what your USP is, you sell it. But actually, the way you dominate a niche isn't by having a page for a sector on your website. The way you dominate a niche is by truly getting the niche, by understanding what it is that they want that others can't deliver. Then you deliver it, then you close the gate behind you. How do you successfully grow a niche-focused accountancy firm? In fact, a better question would be, how do you grow a niche accountancy firm that completely dominates the niche so that other accountancy firms don't even want to touch the niche you're in? Well, on this podcast discussion with Carl Reader, and this is podcast two of two podcasts with Carl, you'll hear Carl share some amazing, deep and granular insights into the things that he has done to grow in two separate niches and to completely dominate those niches. Let's go to that podcast discussion with Carl now. Okay, Carl, I want to, um, I want to change tack slightly and go, um, how come um, you've zeroed in on one particular specialism? What's the history behind that? Yeah, sure. So, so look, Paul, when I joined D&T, so I joined D&T as a staffer and right. I joined them in 2002. Um, I started in the accounting world in 1997. I started for a, a very small firm in Essex and um, I joined as a 16 year old, very wet behind the ears. And when I joined, I had no idea what an accountant was, what accountancy was, you know, no, no concept of this stuff at all. Um, I was, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I, I sound like I've beaten up my past and I should say on the flip side, but I was really fortunate enough to have a grammar school education. Um, you know, I, was, I won the postcode lottery. I, I did go to grammar school and then at the age of 15, I decided that I knew best and I was going to do a YTS in hairdressing and I ditched it all and <laughs> it went a bit messy, but it was down to my my own poor thinking than anything else. But anyway, I was um, I was really fortunate. At the age of 16, I dropped into an accounting firm without any, I guess, family professional background mm. and without any real understanding of business. Um, but I got there, learned, learned the trade, but I, I actually discovered, and this is something that my old boss, Andrew, knows, um, but I don't think anyone else knows, but after about two or three years, I was really bored and I hated accountancy. I was just, it was driving me mad because I now know I'm ADHD and ADHD doesn't work in a room adding up numbers, not speaking to anyone. It, it's just not a good combo. Um, but what I really did enjoy, Paul, was going out, meeting people and um, I started doing training. So I was taking business owners from their green simplex books, if you remember them, or their big red cash books. And I was teaching them about how they can put it onto Microsoft Excel or onto Sage Sterling or um, any of the tools around at the time. For me, it was an excuse to go out, have a crafty fag, meet a client, have a chat with them and a few hours away from what I found quite an oppressive environment. When I joined D&T as a staffer, um, so there is... Um, there is a reason why I'm sharing all of this. When I joined sure. D&T as a staffer, um, 
I joined in 2002 and I was really fortunate that the guy who interviewed me at the time had a personality. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. But let's be honest, most accountants, yeah, if you close your eyes and think of a stereotypical accountant, personality is not the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, they hide behind it rather than putting it at the front, I like to yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this was a guy who's extremely charismatic and we just, yeah, we got a lot of house on fire and we were chatting and... I, I was talking about what I believed an accountant should be doing. And it, we we kind of had the informal agreement between us that I wasn't going to do any accounts. It was kind of the unspoken, but I would just find find my own role in the business. And very quickly within the business, so 2002, I joined very quickly. I found my own role. And that was for martial arts schools. There was a bunch of about 25 or so clients, I would say, that this accountant had taken on. He saw them as a bit beneath him, to be honest, right. because he had outgrown them. He was starting to take on um, sort of 10 million turnover clients, 20 million turnover clients. And these, these 50,000 turnover martial arts schools were a bit, yeah, they, they were a legacy. And he had got them because he had trained in martial arts. So guess who got handed these clients to look after? Because I wasn't going to be going out to the audits of a £10 million turnover client. Sure. So anyway, I took on me to martial arts schools. And it was like, a, quite simply, a match made in heaven. They were, yeah, and again, this sounds um, very broad brush, and I'm sure the PC crowd won't like this. They were blokes like me. They were all blokes. They were all from my age up to 10 years older. So at that time, that was, I was 21, 22. So they were all in their 20s or 30s. Sure. Um, similar interests and um, yeah, just I gelled with them. They were all over the country, and I just I just made it my mission to get to know these people because I won't admit it to them, but I found them really inspirational. I found that their personal uh, their personal journeys, most of them had been bullied, but had taken on karate as something like the age of seven or eight to overcome their personal bullying. And then they become a black belt. Then they might have competed either at UK or world level. Then they're teaching others to teach. But they all had a keen sense of personal development. So I learned from them about things like, you know, these, these crazy names of Americans like Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and Jim Rohn and so oh, on. Brilliant. Um, so it, I was really fortunate because I was driving around the country listening to these audio books and having the world's best education, you know, far better than most few months of school that I bunked off of. Um, I was having the world's best education meeting these people. But also, at the same time, and what I, what I didn't intentionally do, I was really getting under the skin of that world. I was beginning to understand, really simply, if I turned up to a martial arts school, I would know, Paul, the demographics of their local area. You know, fairly simple. You look out the window, this looks a bit of a dodgy area. <laughs> Go down this area, this looks like quite a leafy area. I got, to, I got to know the types of school that flourished in different demographics. I got to know the territories that they could kind of go to. I began mm. to understand where their territories would be marked because, you know, if we, if we look at a, um, a suburban or rural area, you won't go past a dual carriageway. However, if you're looking at London, it's more about the tube map. And so, so I was learning all of this stuff. I was learning the simple things that I could look at a dojo and visualize how many kids could be training at any one time. 
I began to understand the teacher-pupil ratio. I began to understand how they could um, commercialize some of their other revenues, how they could package up their products and all this stuff. Uh, but before long, I'd become so absorbed in that world that I'd got to know the suppliers, I'd got to know um, all of the influential associations and so on. I got on the board of the Martial Arts Standards Agency to write the Child Protection Codes and so on. Um, got involved in the setup of the Federated Taekwondo Body. Wow. Because you've, you've touched on rugby earlier. Mm. Um, Union Rugby League, I understand like this. It's a real conflict between them. Mm. Um, you don't want to know what Taekwondo is like because it's North Korea versus South Korea. Mm. <laughs> so I am a, a little known fact about me. I'm banned from one of the careers, but I don't know which. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, there's no involvement in federating this body and I upset somebody along the way. Um, add to that that the Grandmaster passed away and didn't pass on his type of Taekwondo to someone else properly and it became very messy. Right. Um, but I got involved in um, joining and federating Taekwondo to achieve Olympic funding got involved in the initial setup of the British Kickboxing Council and so on. So I've got a vast experience. But what happened? I became so integrated in that world that I was the only choice. If somebody wanted an accountant who serves martial arts schools, why are they going to go anywhere else? Because they could, they could have gone to another practice and paid probably the same amount, maybe a bit less, yeah. and had very generic business advice. Or they could go to the Gobby Essex boy, mm. who knows where they can buy the cheapest uniforms based on the style of art that they're teaching, mm. who could tell them exactly how much they should be paying for their halls, could pick up the phone to their diet debit collection agency if there's a problem, because I know them all on first name terms. Mm. It became a no brainer. Mm. And Inadvertently, I'd built what I call a micro niche because it's not even a niche. There's only, let's say, a thousand martial arts schools in the UK. At our peak in that world, we looked after 250 of them. Wow. And for businesses that would ordinarily pay you know, a few hundred quid to their previous accountant, we were able to charge thousands. Mm. But we were delivering far more than a set of accounts and a tax return. Yeah. We were their trusted friend in business. So that was when we first understood the power of niching. And then in 2004, one of those martial arts schools wanted to start franchising. And that's where the franchising journey began. Okay. So interpreting that is there was a journey from ignorance around martial arts to I've written the word expert, which seems a bit too lightweight to describe what you've just described. You know, if you get to a place where you're influencing what's going on within Olympic funding, as well as influencing the Federation and so on. How long did that journey take, Carl, from being ignorant of that world to being the go-to, um, the only choice in that space? How long did that take? Wow, in total, I'm going to say about four years. It wasn't long. Oh, really? Right. Wow. It wasn't long at all. Um, what, what you need to remember is when most accountants look at niche markets, let's be honest, they do what SWAT or 2020 or Mercia, other training groups are available. They mm. do what they tell them to do. Mm. And there's a course on become an expert in academies. So guess what? Every accountant puts on their website, we are experts in academies. Mm. And there's tens of thousands of academies and tens of thousands of experts. Um, that sweet spot isn't aligned because it was a micro niche. 
there was only you know, maybe a thousand. I'm usually, very thinking, yeah, there's yeah, only yeah, a thousand yeah. businesses. What other accountant would ever think of specialising in an industry of a thousand businesses? You just mm. wouldn't do it. Mm. But, you know, I guess I was the naive one who bought martialartsaccounts.com, um, started writing for Martial Arts Illustrated, all of this stuff. And it was it was a lot of legwork, don't get me wrong. And a lot of getting to know people, a lot of whining and dining, a lot of um, going to events. And I, I've never done martial arts in my life. I'm not a martial artist. So yeah. I had to integrate myself into an industry that I didn't really understand and I didn't have an emotional connection with. But before long, as you say, I, I just became a, um, a central part of that industry, I guess. But by the way you described that is you were you put in articles in the key magazines or the key websites if it was you know contemporary now um i'm curious now though what what scale of total fees did you build up once you became you know serving 250 of them in a in a, a market 25 percent market domination is pretty pretty impressive isn't it but what was what was the total fee base of your martial arts not big the business? not big um, I'm going to guess, uh, again, this is finger in the air, about half a million max. Right, okay. Uh, I, I would say that's where we capped out. And right, okay. where, where we capped out, we um, we did a lot of VAT work as well. So we were claiming retrospective refunds and obtaining VAT rulings. Yeah, um, yeah. HRC moved the goalposts on it all, so it wasn't something we were able to continue doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had a fair amount of what we call true value work, but yeah. was putting pound shillings and pence in our clients' bank accounts. We were charging 25% of it. Mm -hmm. So that was quite a, um, quite a lucrative business model. That's for a while. The norm for a traditional firm. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, there's was, there was certainly more than enough in, in even what is quite a micro industry for a sole track to have yeah, quite yeah. a business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's still a quarter of a two million pound turnover business as well. Isn't mm -hmm. it? So it's mm -hmm. like, you know, all right, if you take it seriously, and and go deep uh, into that micro niche, you know, the niche within a niche concept. Everyone yeah. talks about oh, niche marketing. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But there's the niche within a niche enables you to really dominate, like you just, you, you, like you clearly did in that in that space. This is it. And I just want to pick out the niche marketing thing because I've, that is a big phrase that's used. Is it about, is, isn't uh, it? Used a marketing lot. to a niche. It's not <laughs> about marketing to them at all. The marketing is dead simple. You get a domain name that's that's related to that industry. You work out what your USP is. You sell it. But actually, the way you dominate a niche isn't by having a page for a sector on your website. The way you dominate a niche is by truly getting the niche, by understanding what it is that they want that others can't deliver. Then you deliver it, then you close the gate behind you. <laughs> it's a simple No, it's, well, it's great. But uh, you know, metaphorically, how do you close the gate behind you? What, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, you're picking for all my, all my tips here now, aren't you? So uh, franchising, Let, let's talk about franchising. Yeah. Uh, because I think in franchising, we had to more actively step up and close the gate. And I'm, I'm happy to share some of the stuff that we did. Um, so franchising, 2004 at the NEC, I was there with my martial arts client. Um, by that point, we were... Um, doing online accounting and so on. And I'm sure we might come to that at a different point. But anyway, um, I was at the NEC and we, I, I was, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know about franchising, 
But I had this light bulb moment that there must be some value in an accountant serving the franchise relationship in some way. So not serving franchisors, not serving franchisees, but serving the relationship. And I could see that there were franchise lawyers and there was a couple of franchise accountants exhibiting. I think right. Price Bailey were there and a couple of others. Okay. And yeah. I was looking at them and I was thinking, you know what, we could do that. We could be stood there advertising today with the same messages, we do the same stuff, mm. but why would anyone come to our stand? Mm. And I met, you know, I met a few franchisors that day, but, but actually the, the bug had got inside me. And over time, I was thinking about how can we make this franchising thing work? And I just kept turning up to the events. In 2007, we took on our first major franchise network, which was Stagecoach Theatre Arts. So nice. Stagecoach are in the top 10, I believe. Yeah. Uh, they're, still, they're still a partner of ours as a, a franchisor level, and we still look after the vast majority of their franchisees. That's very um, personal, that, Carl, because my, my sister is a singing coach within... A Oh, State is she? Yeah, 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 yeah. Has done. Has done. She she works in universities and what have you now as well, but she still does some bits and pieces within Stagecoach. So yeah, yeah. Uh... So Stagecoach was a, a phenomenal organisation, yeah. and I learned so much from them personally because um, their founder David Sprick, who sadly passed away um, this year, mm. he's one of two people who I put down my, um, I, I guess what I've done in franchising, I put it down to them. Um, they were a PLC at the time, and I had this vision of what a PLC would be, and that vision was shaped by what I learned at business studies at school at GCSE, yeah, 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 yeah. which was big glass buildings and so on. And you know, he's a proper bloke. Mm. You went into the office, it was a normal business. I was able to sit down with him, have a chat, we'd talk about cars and all of this stuff, and he was just he, he was just normal. Anyway, um, so we, we took on Stagecoach. We took on Stagecoach through direct mail. All right. Um, we direct mailed their franchisees, and this was in 2007. So bear in mind, this was when everybody was saying direct mail is is dead. Don't do it. Mm. Um, everybody was saying email marketing's a way forwards. Well, we direct mailed, and we we sent um, 200 letters out to 200 of their franchisees. All 200 got sent to head office, saying, "Oi, head office, have you sold our details?" All right. We had a chat with David and it was very confrontational at first. What the hell are you doing contacting our franchisees? Mm. But over time, we, um, we actually won that network and um, bought, on the, bought on the whole network on board. Um, funnily enough, I didn't get what our USP, what our hook was in that world. Um, at first, I thought we were going to take on Stagecoach PLC. We've never looked after a PLC before. They've been serviced by KPMG. They're listed on the AIM market. I was off my head. I didn't have a clue. Uh, but that probably shows how bad an accountant I am. I then looked at their VAT compliance because there was a, um, a VAT case for Subway where um, bad treatment in one business got extrapolated across the network. Anyway, Long story short, when we started working for them, we realised what the hook was. And the hook was that franchisors didn't have a clue with what was going on in their franchisees' business. But we only understood that when we got into the workings of a big network. And we realised that, you know, much like I mentioned with the martial arts world, where we knew all the suppliers and so on, in the franchising world, on a franchise-by-franchise -franchise basis... You take Stagecoach, we knew that Lester Bowden was supplying all the 
uh, all the T-shirts and so on. And we knew that consider this, we're doing all the marketing. And uh, you know, all of these individual companies, and they all had individual contracts with individual franchisees. But these businesses were supposed to be templated. They were supposed to be a model. It was supposed to be a business in a box. Yeah. So we started benchmarking. We started understanding the drivers of success in the very best franchisees. What could we take and replicate in other franchisees? We started really getting under the skin of how these businesses work, what determines success, what determines failure. And then trying to understand not just from a results perspective, but from an activity perspective, what is the um, minimum activity that starts driving results and the maximum activity that caps out the benefit for their territory. So what I mean by that is, let's say, Paul, you and I decide we're going to start a business and we're selling dancing, we're stagecoach, we're dancing and singing and theatre arts, and we're going to start dropping leaflets. Mm. And we've got the territory of Derby. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're in Derby, and we could do a leaflet drop. If we drop one leaflet, it's not worth our time getting in the car because conversion rates and so on means that we're probably going to get 0.02 of a student. Mm. It's not going to happen. Mm. If we were to drop, I don't know, 300,000 leaflets in Derby, mm. it's not going to work because we're probably going to be dropping three leaflets through everybody's door. Mm. So there's an optimum level that's probably somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 leaflets that would be a, the effective um, a, the effective range, the effective area for that campaign. Right. So we tried to understood in those, um, in those parameters how that looked for their hiring their halls and their churches and how that looked for their marketing and all of this. Yeah. So we got to really understand the business. And then very simply, we've, um, we started to build some software to um, help automate some of that process. Mm -hmm. And we became the, um, I guess, the central hub or on a network by network basis. So how do we close the gate on the wider industry? Right. Yeah. Which is the question that you ask, because yep, yep. I've gone around a really long way you to have. get there. <laughs> okay. At this point, bear in mind, we are an essential control system at franchise or level. So we've got a hub and spoke relationship. Yeah. We've only got one really strong relationship that we need to maintain that's worth £200,000 worth of turnover per year. Mm -hmm. we've, um, we've become very sticky on the network basis. Mm -hmm. How do we bring that out to the wider industry? Really simple. In our business, we have what we call our five stars. And our five stars are the stakeholders. Um, yeah, that would be the normal um, management speak for this. Um, so we have our partners at the very, sorry, team at the very top. We then have our partners, as you imagine, the, the sort of the second point of the star. And then the point on the other side of the star is the markets that we serve. So we rank the market at parity to our partners. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, whereas most people, the, the market would be far lower. We then have community and industry. Right. So if you imagine the start, the top, you've got the team. Yeah. You've then got partners at the same ranking as market. And then the final two points, community and industry. Okay. Got it. Um, notably, myself and Ben, the two shareholders, aren't on that at all. Mm -hmm. uh, we did. We felt that if we got, if we served the other five points of the star, that it would just naturally drop out to us at some point. Mm. Um, 
But serving the market on an equivalent basis to how we serve our partners, I guess, was key. Mm. So what did we do to serve the franchising industry? Um, first of all, at a very micro level, we were giving back. So we were providing thought leadership, content, um, speaking at the opening of an envelope and so on, just to genuinely give best practice and feedback to the wider industry. So we were writing for all of the trade press. We got to know the people behind it. We were speaking at all the BFA events and so on. So that was the first layer. The second layer was getting actively involved in the trade body. So I personally became very involved in the British Franchise Association um, from being an active, not not supporter. Um, I, I mean, I'm very supportive of the BFA, mm. but a critical friend of the BFA finding ways that the BFA could improve, finding ways that the BFA could refine its message, improve resonance with the market, and ultimately become a force for good. Mm -hmm. um, that then led to me being involved on the committees and then in turn getting onto the board of the BFA. Mm. So uh, the, the short answer for how we close the gate, I signed off the applications for affiliates. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's very cheeky. You know, of course I would, of course I'd allow good affiliates through. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I got involved from a governance perspective in the BFA. Yeah. Um, got involved internationally as well. So whilst there was no immediate win available for us, I, I became very active on the international franchising scene, not just the UK franchising scene. Mm. So I went out to uh, the New York franchise show, the Anaheim franchise show, um, you know, Dubai, um, Istanbul, Poland, yeah. Frankfurt, all, all of these franchise shows. Why did I do it, Paul? Yes, there was a chance of winning a network that we're going to come to the UK. Mm. But quite frankly, I wanted other accountants to see me on social media mm. and think, bloody hell, we're not going to spend 10 grand in a couple of weeks doing that. Mm. Yeah, we, yeah. we increased the perceived barriers to entry. Right. It also then actually ended up giving us work. Mm -hmm. Because we've now got an international network. So when anyone's thinking of franchising into the UK, who's the first port of call yeah. before it even gets to the franchise consultants? Yeah. So, so that helped us there. Um, we then looked. So, so we've got that. We've got, the, uh, we've got the governance. We've got the international stuff and the perceived barriers. We had our software, which I touched on earlier. Mm -hmm. We developed our own tool called the Franchising Dashboard because we believe that Longer, longer range for tax returns and accounts are going to drop out for us. Mm. But actually, the data across a network is really powerful for us. So we've got a big vision on what the data of who the franchisees are buying from, the bulk buying abilities, all of that stuff. We think that there's huge areas for virtualization of the franchise management process. Um, and we, we just think there's a, a huge, really really valuable win-win across Amazing. the board there. Yeah, so yeah, we've yeah. got our technological developments that no one else has got because it's proprietary. If, if you're a network that doesn't use DNT, you don't get it. If your franchisees aren't using us, you don't get it. Finally, so we, we've got all, all of those. Mm. And I've, I've actually forgotten my final point, but there was, there was another don't one. Don't worry. I promise, I promise I'm not holding back the goodies here. Well, you, you're clearly not. You're clearly not. So in terms of you know closing the gate, we've got give back, whether yep. it be through thought leadership or investing in the publications. When, and part of that is the trade body. So UK yep. trade body. So which, and my question, which flashed through my head when you're describing that is that, that 
that requires a human contact with one or two or more people that Massively. you nurture, doesn't it? So, so you live zeroed in on some way. How, how did you make that happen? Was it deliberate or accidental that? Um, it was deliberate by that point. You know, I did, I did get a few brain cells along the way. I like to right. say things intelligent, everything's accidental, but there was, there was yeah. a, um, a few points of inspiration where we realised that we needed to be, um, or we needed to basically replicate what we had done by accident in the martial arts world. Yeah. So um, we, first of all, we engaged just as members. Yeah, we signed up as members because we felt it was what we needed to do. Mm. And pull deep down, I'm an accountant in terms of being tight. You know, I'm not an accountant in many ways, but yeah. in being tight, I am. And whilst there was probably 60 law firms who paid three grand a year for this badge, yeah. but they have on their website and they have a sector page within franchising and they don't have a single franchising customer. To me, I was paying three grand. I was going to milk that for all it was worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the milking of it and turning up to all of the events and so on naturally led to the relationships building and, oh, you're the accountant who keeps turning up. Do you, yeah. do you fancy talking about accountancy? And yeah. it kind of evolved from there. Yeah, brilliant. So so that was that bit. But the, the human point is, um, is also another way of closing the gate. Look, it, our MD wasn't recruited through an agency. He was a mate. Mm. And I just made a lot of friends in that world. I yeah. got to know um, all of the franchisors on a personal level. Um, yeah, uh, we just got to know the people. If, if somebody is looking for a new job in franchising, they will typically phone me up. And if mm. somebody's looking for a new employee in franchising, they'll phone me up mm. because it's a small village and we all know each other. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that, that small village mentality and outlook um, forces you, doesn't it, to maintain and nurture the key relationships, if not all relationships, because everyone knows everyone else. Massively. And, you know, we've had huge competition in that world. Um, so KPMG were our biggest ones. Their small business accounting willy waving exercise. Um, and apologies if that goes beyond your swear filter. No, but no, I, I don't have one. <laughs> we, um, you know, when KPMG came in, we saw that it was a 50 grand problem. And what I mean by a 50 grand problem was that we were going to have to ramp up our sponsorships and our presence. Um, we're pretty good. When we, do a, when we do an exhibition or a trade show, we're pretty good at making a noise. And mm. we can spend 250 quid for just a pop-up banner stand mm. and make it look like it's our conference. Mm. Yeah, not just that we're platinum sponsors, it's the, the D&T conference that the BFA are turning up to. We were, mm -hmm. we were good at um, creating a viral buzz. But we realised we would have to start sponsoring and so on. Um, so that was challenging. But we found that we were unaffected by them. They did not take a single client from us. Mm -hmm. um, and in the market, they won the payroll of one network and that was it. You know, we had enough spies on the ground to tell us what was going on. Um, PwC tried with my finance partner, Deloitte and Touche, um, or Deloitte, should I say, they... Um, they did a, or they engaged a consultant to review the franchising market and decide if they couldn't compete against us. So we had all of the big players trying to get in. Mm -hmm. We have little players trying to get in, but because because of the relationships and the depth of experience mm -hmm. and knowledge and just being part of that world, mm -hmm. it's really tough for someone to get in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing, amazing. 
Carl, you said it took four years for you to be go, go from you know ignorant in the martial arts world to becoming the dominant player, the go-to player. Why would you go anywhere else? Uh, how long did it take in the larger field of UK franchising to get from you know not ignorance because you you knew because of the martial arts ex expertise. Yeah. I get that, so you weren't completely ignorant, but to go to a place where you're the dominant player that you know. Um, you know, growls at KPMG and Deloitte and the likes what? and they go away. How long did that take? Do you know what? Um, you've asked me that. It's the first time I thought of the answer. It's four years again. Really? Yeah, it's... and I had no idea. So I'm glad you've asked me that. Right. So it only four years so... were very different, though. All right. Yeah, because yeah, of course. Four years, so four years in martial arts was without without knowledge or intention, really. Yeah. Acc it almost not accidental, happened. but, you know. Yeah, yeah. The four years in franchising was with a kind of a playbook to make it happen. Yeah. And, you know, 2007 was when we first started really playing in it. We say 2004, yeah. 2007, when we won our first network. Right. Um, it was then four years. After four years, we probably had about 60 networks that we were looking after. Um, in total in the UK, the survey quotes that there's 900 networks we believe the addressable market is about 600 right. um, and that's about 44,000 businesses. But, but look, the, the simple, I guess the maths of marketing to a niche or servicing a niche or however you want to phrase it, our local town that we serve is Swindon. Mm. Okay. In Swindon, there's 2000 businesses. Yeah. And there's about 70 firms of accountants in franchising. There's probably three firms of accountants and we are by far uh, the leading firm in terms of client numbers and on all other metrics. In fact, we're, we're the biggest professional advisors to the franchising space globally, we believe. Right, um, right. Obviously, it's really hard to, to tell without phoning up each one, but yeah, we believe yeah, yeah. we're the largest globally. Um, but there's 44,000 businesses and there's three accountants. Mm. Yeah. Why, right would we, why would we not specialise? <laughs> yeah, what, what planet? Yeah. Would we have to be on to think that it's not worth going all in on this and chucking all our chips and giving it a good go. Yeah, brilliant. Now, chucking in all our chips meant that it, as a business, it cost us a hell of a lot to get there. Mm. You know, sacrificed profit share to, um, to invest. Mm. It cost us millions to really get traction in that world. Yeah, over, um, over time, over time. Over time, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've remembered the other closing of the gate that we did. So we, um, we extended our services as well. So we, we're now the, um, in fact, we are the largest independent funder of franchises in the UK as well. Wow. So a, a good part of our new business every month now is asset finance. Right. You know, none of this um, messing around with refinancing existing clients and, um, where the accounting world tends to get stuck on, you know, uh, whining and dining bank managers or mm. um, loan comparison sites. We've got a team of funders who are funding fleets of vans. They're funding shop fit outs. They're funding kitchens month in, month out. Mm. And what we did with that, and I guess the, the logic behind closing the gate on that was that we wanted to find something that our partners wanted because they don't want tax returns. They don't want accounts. They don't choose to have this stuff. Mm. What do they want? They want their shiny new kitchen. Mm. They want their shop to open. They want the sign written vans. So if we can make that stuff happen for them, then we're in the business plan without any question. 
we contra- we're contracted in proof of franchise agreement anyway. Yeah. We've been ethically con- or, or morally contracted in because we've helped them out as well in getting the funding. Why wouldn't that kick off the relationship in the very best way? And the magic pull down the line, we can compare plans versus activity. Yeah. Accountancy 101. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, back to the uh, full circle round to accountability again, I guess, on the on the on the on the on the whole conversation. Um, Carl, again, really appreciate your time and your effort and your energy today. Uh, it's been outstanding. Thank you very, very much. You'll find more valuable discussions with the leaders of ambitious accounting firms at humanisethenumbers.online. You can also sign up to be notified each time a new podcast is made available. This podcast series, Humanise the Numbers, has been made possible thanks to the support of our sponsors, My Work Papers, Advanced Track, Zotago and VFD Pro. Visit humanisethenumbers.online, click the logo of each sponsor and you'll hear what our podcast interviewees have to say about the sponsor's services. So, Carl, I know you've recently done the hard graft of writing your own uh, in-depth book, uh, Boss It. I hope I've got that right. Um, and I've uh, had the great privilege of, um, of of pulling out one or two quotes and using them on presentations, always referencing you, by the way. Um, uh, tell me, what was the kernel and the reason for starting that process and, and, and how's it gone? So I'm really glad that you've referenced um, Bossit quotes to me because I probably nicked them from someone else. So thank you so much. Um, (laughs) I probably shouldn't admit that, but hey, um, there's very little that's original these days. Absolutely. Um, What was the driver behind Bossit? So I wrote my first book, Startup Coach, in 2014, 2015. And to be honest, Paul, I wanted to redo the Startup Coach. I wanted to make it something that I would want to read, um, but more importantly to me, something my kids would want to read. Mm. So I wanted it to be a letter to my kids and I guess the textbook that's not given at schools. So for me personally, there's um, a couple of things that really drive me. So the first one is poverty alleviation. And I believe, uh, particularly for kids, and I know I shouldn't discriminate, but I I do work with... um, the Trussell Trust and with Buttle, they're both around poverty alleviation. Mm. And my view is that no kid chooses to be in poverty. Mm. If the parents might make choices that lead to it, but the kids don't choose. And uh, they all have to be given a, a, a fair start in life. And then the second is um, entrepreneurship at a young age, because I believe that for many people, entrepreneurship is a very, uh, not an easy way, but it's a way out of poverty and it's a way to build so many life skills that can help you, even if you don't end up being Richard Branson. Yeah. So it kind of hit my sweet spot there as well. So that was the combination was um, trying to trying to serve people, trying to get people out of tricky situations, but giving the next generation hope that they could do something. But the challenge we've got is that there's no textbook for business at school. Mm-hmm. And when I did business studies, if you'd have asked me what business was, it was all shiny glass buildings and share valuations and so yeah, on. Yeah. It wasn't the reality of buying something for a fiver and selling it for a tenner. Yeah. So I wanted to create that that basic textbook on how to start a business 
But I also didn't want it to be a textbook because Startup Coach was a textbook. I wanted it to be a combination of checklists, but also cheerleading. Yeah, yeah. So that there's motivation and inspiration as well as application. And hopefully I hit the spot. It was um, best-selling in WH Smith's for eight months. Yeah, yeah. Keep seeing it in every railway station I go in. It's brilliant. Carl, again, really appreciate your time and your effort and your energy today. Uh, It's been outstanding. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Paul. Have an awesome weekend and enjoy the refereeing.